All right, let's give God praise. Good to see you this morning. Well, the angels proclaimed at first Easter that Jesus Christ had uh, risen from the dead. Angels made the announcement. That's pretty appropriate because if you think about when Jesus was born, it was, it was angels that announced his birth. And now they're announcing that Jesus Christ had burst out of the tomb and he had overcome Satan. Aren't you glad of that? And our sin and the debt we owed and the sting, which is death because of our sin, Jesus Christ is alive. But that first Easter, Jesus preached a sermon. And so I could say it's the first Easter sermon. And I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. This morning, we're going to look at what Jesus had to say. And it's important that we do. If we don't see what Jesus has to say in Luke 24, we'll miss the purpose for which he's left us here. And you are, you are here on purpose. You are here on purpose. If you don't see this this morning, I'm afraid you won't see you won't see why it is that Jesus rose from the dead and then gave us resurrection power. I, I wonder how many times we've come to an Easter service and then really didn't know what to do with what was said or what to do with the resurrection. We know Jesus rose from the dead and we believe that. At least I hope you do. But what do I do with that? Well, you're, you're not alone if you ask the question, what does the resurrection mean for me? And what do I do with it? Uh, the women who came to the tomb, they didn't know what to do with the body of Jesus except to show it dignity by giving it spices and embalming it. But then Jesus sent messengers who said, hey, he's not here. Remember what he said when he was with you? And when they remembered, then they knew exactly what Jesus had done. It was two disciples and they were on their way to Emmaus where they lived and they were really downtrodden because they didn't know what had happened. In fact, listen, the purpose of their life had been to live for Jesus so that they could join him in an earthly kingdom. And when Jesus died, they saw the purpose for their life disintegrate. And when you don't have purpose, you really don't wake up with a lot of joy. It's I owe, I owe. It's off to work, I go. It's sitting in the car, waiting to the last second to get into work because you just can't stand going to that place. When you don't have purpose, you feel like you're stuck. You feel like you're stuck in life. So maybe some of you feel stuck in a marriage. Maybe you feel stuck in your own Christian existence. And you feel like, I need to do something else. Something else needs to happen. And we, we live in a nation where people are moving from here to there. They're selling houses and moving from state to state, from job to job, to community to community, away from friends and family. Why? Something has to give. Do you know, if you know what your purpose is in life, you'll get up with a lot more joy. In fact, I was reading this week that people that actually know the purpose for their life live longer. They have less cardiovascular disease and they have less stress in their life if they know what their purpose is. You know that companies that live on purpose for the most part are successful companies. All major companies that are profitable are companies that live on purpose. You have been given purpose by God, whether you know that or not. In fact, I would probably like to retitle this message. I titled this message some time ago, but I discovered this week, I should really entitle this message, 
Live on purpose. Titles usually come at the end of a message anyway. Live on purpose. And that's what I want you to do. If you have your Bibles, it's Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44. Disciples don't know what to do with the resurrection. They don't know what direction to go. They don't know what to do with everything they've seen. So Jesus is going to say, this is your purpose. This is your purpose. You have a lot of purpose you have a lot of calls, a lot of things that you are destined to do by God. There's one purpose for all of us in this room. The reason we gather together on the Lord's Day as a congregation is because we come together to, as a congregation, fellowship with the Lord together. And I want us to fellowship around His purpose for us all. If, if you have your Bibles, stand up. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version or the ESV on your device if you have that. And you can follow right along. Then Jesus said, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to see here what it is that you purposed not only for the disciples, but for us as well. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. I, I, I want to be clear, because I've said it several times, but in case you just check out, start thinking about Easter lunch or Easter eggs or anything like that, I want you to live on purpose, because Jesus wants you to live on purpose. I want our church to live on purpose. And it's because Jesus gave us this church and this location at this time to live on purpose. That, that's why today we're celebrating the fact that we're starting a brand new church in St. Augustine called Mission City Church. Philip Skarnecki and Aaron Skarnecki and about 50 of our folks helped get, to get it started. And today's their first official worship service. Praise God for that. And you are a part of that. And it's just the beginning of some, uh, some other endeavors that we believe God has called us into to reach people because God's given us a purpose. About a month ago, I received a text from a buddy of mine, Ryan, and he was at a high school event in a gymnasium. And there was a kid, a high school guy, he was preaching the gospel, and he was from Orange Park High School. But this gym was at some other school, but he was explaining that he was from Orange Park High School. He explained also that he was a part of a, a Bible ministry there called REACH, which stands for Raiders Excited About Christ Homecoming. And the reason Ryan sent that to me is because Years ago, I was in geometry class, and uh, I don't know what I was doing, but I probably wasn't paying attention to geometry. But my buddy John next to me said, hey, I'm thinking about starting this Bible study to reach our friends for Christ. What do you think about helping? And there was really, uh, really no reason to pray about that. I'm like, yeah, I'll help you with that. I'm a junior in high school, geometry class or whatever, and we're, yeah, we're going to do that. Some of you had geometry in eighth grade. I don't want to hear it. So we start this Bible study, 
It's in Orange Park High School's uh, gymnasium. It's called Raiders Excited About Christ Homecoming. I'm just kind of along. And uh, long story short, John kind of, he, he's not there. And another guy that's helping out, he's, he's really shy. And so all of a sudden at 6.30 every morning, every single morning, 6.30 in the morning, I'm leading a Bible study at Orange Park High School in the gymnasium by default. Not because that was my vision or because I decided to do that, but because I was the only one there with a Bible. And I get a, a text, you know. By the way, I just got to pray, uh, Todd Smith pray with him, actually, a guy that was in our student ministry that's still living for Jesus, and he's in Miami right now, and he's back up and he visited with us this morning, and I didn't know he was coming. But I think about that, because I think about um, Harold Theus, a friend of mine, who um, started going to, to reach, and we were in the Burger King parking lot across from the high school on Kingsley Avenue, and in my old Chevy Nova, um, Harold Theus asked Jesus to save him. And I remember Hank Barnett, who um, uh, played baseball and he, he, he had moved to Texas and he was back in town and he came to eat supper, uh, dinner actually with us after a church service one Sunday morning and he sat around our table and Hank gave his life to Jesus Christ. And I can think about my friend Brad. Some of y'all are part of Tammy Taunton's ministry uh, to reach his uh, girls that are caught up in, in some really, um, some, some serious stuff, right? And so you're a part of that ministry to try to help rescue some of these girls out of that. And I can remember Brad being a part of Reach. And I think about, you know, all the things I did in high school, what matters most now? What matters most? I mean, does it really matter, you know, uh, what I did on the ball field? Did it really matter what, it, what happened in the classroom? I'm not saying those things don't matter. They really, but April 17th, 2022, April 17th, 2022, a hundred years from now, I'll probably be dead by then. And so will you. Hate to break it to you. What will matter then? So here in the beginning, I probably already told you that God left you here for a purpose. And that purpose is bigger than you probably ever imagined. It's going to last longer than you will ever live. And this is what he tells his disciples. He says, I, I left you here on purpose and I want you to live on purpose. And here's what it is. Ready? Here's the outline. You can write it down. Uh, it's real simple, but maybe in a ledger of your Bible or somewhere. Here's, here's, here's your purpose, guys. That's what Jesus says to the disciples, because they, they're like, I don't, we, what, what? our heads are spinning. What's going on? Well, here's what's going on. You're going to proclaim me from the scriptures. That's what's going on. You're going to proclaim me from the scriptures. You're going to proclaim me to all people in all places. There's nobody so far away that they can't be reached either in sin or geographical location. And you're going to do this all in the power that I'm going to give you from my Father in heaven. Like, you don't have to depend on yourself to do this. I'm going to empower you to do that. Now, that's one thing when someone says, I'm going to help you. It's another thing when someone just beat death and they said they're going to help you. Like, are you with me so far? This is it. So let's see what he says. I want you to proclaim Jesus from the scriptures, Jesus said. Verse 44. These are my words that I spoke while I was still with you. Indicating this. Jesus is not with the disciples like he was once with the disciples. And he is about to ascend into heaven. Giving them the promise of the Holy Spirit. So that 
they could remember what was taught, what was spoken, and that they could proclaim it as well. And that would be to proclaim it about Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you're a witness of these things. What things? The things about me in the Scriptures. I don't want to take it for granted today that you know what the Scriptures are or have been taught what the Scriptures contain. The Scriptures are what we call the Bible. It's a good shorthand for what we hold in 66 books. The word Bible is Latin for the word library. It is a biblios or a containing, a, a contextualization of 66 books. We have the Scriptures. Jesus proclaimed himself from the Scriptures that the disciples had. That's the Old Testament. And if you'd asked the disciples to take their Old Testament out, they would have said, what? Because what they had was Genesis all the way to Malachi. And there they had the Scriptures explained to them by Jesus. This is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what the Scriptures have taught. Now, you can't go to any one Scripture and find everything that Jesus said here. But in totality, from Genesis to Malachi, you see Jesus on every page explaining what His plan was, what the predestined plan of God the Father was, and what the Spirit accomplished through Jesus Christ in that plan. All of it coming together in the death and resurrection of Christ. What you have in the Bible... Is God's Word. God is the author. Yes, men wrote it. And sometimes people even push back with me and say, well, I don't know if I trust the Bible. Men wrote it. I'm grateful that men wrote the Bible. It didn't fall out of the sky. I don't have to tell you that somebody found it in a field or in a cave, but that God said that He moved holy men along as the Holy Spirit inspired them. Paul says that Holy Spirit inspired the very words of, of God so that men in their ingenuity and in their intellectual ability and even with their own personality were used by God to give us the Holy Scriptures. They're canonized. I love that word, canonized. I like I think about that. Because when you think about a canon, you probably don't think about a book. You think about a weapon. And you think about a very significant weapon, a cannon, that we still use today in different ways on battleships. But you think about a cannon and what it has the ability to do. The Word of God has the ability to do incredible, powerful work. But the word canon has the idea of gathering together what is the Holy Scripture and recognizing it for what it is. So whenever you read maybe something about the Bible and it says that not all of the Bible is contained in these 66 books because there are other books out there like the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of whoever, you go, wait a minute, why aren't these other books in the Bible? Why aren't the Apocrypha books in the Bible? And here's why. Because God inspired 66 books. They are recognized by men. They weren't defined by men. And they were contained in this text. And so we learned the book of Revelation. By the way, we're going to start a study of the book of Revelation here in a couple of weeks. That we're not to add one thing to this. And we're not to take one thing away from this. So we have the Scriptures. We have the Scriptures. And what are the Scriptures about? What are the Scriptures about? Aren't you glad that the Scriptures aren't just a moral book to tell you how you can live? The Bible, for some people, is what not to do and what they are to do. It's just this, it's just this moral code, and this is how you're supposed to live. But you and I need to understand, this Bible, the Scriptures, is about Jesus. The overarching theme of the Bible is how Jesus came to save us. The central character of the Scriptures, Jesus. So this is why we hold the Scriptures precious, because it's, they've been written over 15 to 1,800 years by 40 different authors with all the same theme. 
all the same theme. Consistently, congruently, and constantly pointing out the character Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to hear Jesus preach himself from the scriptures? How many of you are like, I signed up for that Bible study. I got to pay money to go hear that. I'm going to drop it on you. There's a bunch of people right now that are on their way to hell that would love for somebody just to sit down and show them Jesus in the scriptures today. In fact, I have said this over the course of my Christian life, and I mean it more now than I've ever meant it. There are more people who want to hear about Jesus than there are people willing to tell them about Jesus. I'm raised every time I began sharing Jesus, how many people there are that are hungry to hear about him, who've never really heard the truth about him, who've never had someone to sit down with them with the scriptures and say, this is who Jesus is. And we show them the scriptures, we show them the scriptures, we can show them Jesus. Because the Bible is God displayed in a book. And Jesus is God displayed in a body. Whenever we show people the word of God, we show God in print. When we show them Jesus, we show God in person. This is what John said in 1 John. John, who was there present when Jesus was telling us these things, and 1 John said, we saw him, we handled him. He is the word of life. Jesus is called the word of God and we hold in our hands the word of God about Jesus so we can show people, Jesus said, who Jesus is from the scriptures. And he's on the, every page of the scriptures. So how do we do that? I mean, how do we proclaim Jesus from the scriptures? Because this is the command the disciples have, were given, but it's also our command. Thank God they took up the task because we're here today. Look at the room. We're here because people heard Jesus say, this is your purpose. And they said, okay, we'll do it. If there is an April 17th, 2022, there will be people in church say, because you say, okay, I see my purpose and I'll take it up. Scott didn't give me the purpose. The church didn't give me the purpose. Jesus gave me my purpose. So let's look at how we do that. How do we proclaim Jesus? Verse 46, Jesus didn't leave it to chance. He said, here's what I want you to proclaim. Here's what I want you to proclaim. By the way, you might want to note here what he told us to proclaim and what's not there. What's not there? Just as we look at it, look at verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Okay, number one, tell them about an old rugged cross. Tell them I died. Tell them how the Christ suffered. That's an amazing thought that Christ would die. He's the author of life. In the beginning was God, and God created the heavens and the earth. And we read in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus Christ spoke everything into existence. It is Jesus who is the author of life. He's the one who spoke even Adam and Eve into existence without the help of another man or woman. Before there was a human on the earth, Jesus created life out of nothing. And then Jesus created a woman from man. He took a rib out of Adam right next to his heart and gave him the greatest gift a man can ever have, a godly wife. And then through the reproductive process, God created, God created us. 
But when Jesus came and took on human flesh, notice that God did not use a man in that process. Jesus' birth was miraculous because Jesus was born without a man being evolved. The Holy Spirit conceived in Mary, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, which meant several things. When Jesus was born, he was born without imputed sin, sin of Adam, an inherited sin nature. He did not have a sin nature, and he did not personally sin. Jesus is sinless. Now watch this, y'all. When we tell people that Jesus died, we know that the soul that sins will die. Proof is in every cemetery, every funeral procession you ever go by, people who sin die. The wages of sin is death. Maybe you learned that in the movie National Treasure, but that came from the Scriptures. The wages of sin is death, and the soul that sins will die. But Jesus never sinned. He's a sinless Son of God. Why did He die? here's, Here's why. This is what we're proclaiming. He died for sinners. He died in the place of sinners. Jesus died in order that sinners could have their sin forgiven. This is the mercy of God. See, every religion, and every person is born religious, by the way, even if they're an atheist, have some sort of religious idea that if we'll live morally, good things will happen to us. But what we need is mercy from God, not morality from ourselves. I have to admit this. I, I do enjoy watching these instant karma videos. I don't know if you've ever seen them. I'm not suggesting you find them. I'm not sure what's all on them. But it's kind of like, goes like this. You know, this guy, he comes by and he's seeing a real jerk on the road and he's yelling and screaming at a mama in a minivan and he's, you're like, this guy's a jerk. And all of a sudden, instant karma. He runs over a Bob's barricade and he, <laughs> his truck's all messed up and he's got to pull over and you're like, ah, that's what you get. Instant karma. You know what karma is? If you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. I don't believe in karma. The Bible doesn't teach karma. Religion teaches karma. Thank God for the Bible. Because in the Bible, we read that though we deserve death, we can receive life. And though we deserve hell, we can go to heaven. If I got what I deserved, it would be hell. If you got what you deserve, it would be hell. We have sinned against the holy God. And if we receive from God what we deserve, it would be hell. And no amount of morality on our part is going to equate to mercy on God's part. Our goodness is not going to help us to attain grace from God. That's why we proclaim Jesus Christ died. He died in your place. The wages of sin is death, but he died. But then notice this, Easter, right? Tell them I died and tell them three days later I rose again. And that's what they did. Why? They're looking at the resurrected Christ, but they really didn't know what to do with him until he said, the scriptures has proclaimed me as one who needed to die and then raise again. All the way back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, here's what happened. And it's an amazing thing that happened. God killed an animal in order to cover their nakedness. Adam and Eve at that point, they'd never buried a puppy. They'd never flushed a goldfish. They never had to replant a plant that had died until they sinned. And uh, I don't know what it was like maybe for them to see the first animal killed. And to feel 
that it was because of their sin that something had to die. But it pointed to the time that God himself would give us the perfect, spotless, sinless lamb of God who would die in our place. But Jesus said, tell them, I didn't stay dead. And now the light's coming on for them. He is resurrected. He is alive, which was a glorious vindication of everything that Jesus had said about himself. He had told the disciples on many occasions, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to raise again. Tear this temple down, and in three days, I'll raise it up. He even said this in the book of Luke. Hey, guys, let this sink in. It's actually in the ESV. It's that way. Let this sink in. I am going to suffer. I am going to be buried, and I am going to raise again from the dead. And it didn't sink in until he proclaimed himself from the scriptures and said, I have resurrected. And when he resurrected from life, he not only vindicated all of his claims, but he also shows us there is life after death. And there's life after death for us. And we will rise and we'll have a body. Jesus, when he rose, had a body. When he sat with the disciples in Luke 24, he actually ate fish and bread with them. But he had a body unlike theirs, unlike ours. He could be in one place one moment and a totally different place the next moment. He could go through a wall and not use a door. I don't know what kind of body that is, but I'm getting one. <laughs> There's a group that Leslie and I like, and they sing a song I didn't understand. I mean, I like to understand my music. It's not a real spiritual song, but it does have a spiritual meaning. Um, it goes like this. You'll understand why I said, I don't understand this. The reason I, I say that is because I heard the, the, the leader of this group say, say this. He goes, there are a lot of people out there on platforms singing, speaking, and preaching who think they're difference makers, and they're making a difference because they're filling up buildings. They're filling up concert halls. But there's only one difference maker. So he says this in the song, right? Here, here's how the song goes. And you'll, when, you're, when I quote the song, you're like, some of y'all know it, some of you don't, but you'll see why it's kind of weird. But this is the last line I want you to pay attention to because it's what, what really matters. A helpless conversation, the song goes, with a man who says he cares a lot. It's a hopeless confrontation about who might throw a punch or not. We're all transgressors. We're all sinners. We're all astronauts. So if you are beating death then raise your hand, but shut up if you're not. Now, I know you're not supposed to say shut up in church or anywhere else, really. That's how I feel. I mean, really, tell me about your philosophy. Tell me about your idea. Tell me about your religion, but are you beating death? Because there's only one who died and rose again, and he is alive. He beat death. So I want to know what he has to say about the matter. So Jesus said this, the resurrection happens. So tell them. And by the way, the resurrection was not disputed in the first century. You won't find records of people saying things like they do in the 21st. Well, maybe he didn't really die. Maybe he swooned. Maybe the disciples took his dead body and hid it away. In the first century, people knew that he rose again. It is why the church spread like 
wildfire. Not because people went in with swords and went on crusades and said, you better turn to Jesus or we're going to kill you. It's because they came with resurrection power. They were peasants. They were blue collar workers. And they came with a lot of pedigree, not a lot of ingenuity. They came with the power of the resurrection to say, y'all know he rose from the dead. He beat death. That's what they proclaimed. That's why we're here today, y'all, in the 21st century. And it's what Jesus said we're to proclaim as well. Thirdly, Jesus said this. Tell them not only that I died, tell them that I rose again, and tell them because of that they need to repent. Preach repentance. Jesus preached repentance. Unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Peter preached repentance. All Every sermon, every sermon in the book of Acts preaches repentance. Paul said, I declare that you should repent. What is repentance? Repentance means that I'm changing. That means I'm leaving something behind and I'm going on to something else. Repentance is a turn. When you come out of our church, you have to turn north on US 17, right, Zach? North on US 17. And if you want to go south, you have to take a U-turn. You have, to, you have to do a U-turn. I got that right, right? Okay, good. I'm just making sure you're with me. Because Zach was nodding yes. Just kidding, Zach. He wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't. If I go to my house, and it's south, and I'm going to Creighton Island, that's what we like to call it in our hood, I have to go and do a U-turn to go back south to my house. This is the idea of repentance. That's all it is. I'm going one direction. I got to turn and go the other direction. Jesus said, this is what you should proclaim. One of my favorite illustrations of this is a little guy by the name of Zacchaeus. The reason I say a little guy is because the Bible says he's little. He's little in stature. He climbs a tree to see Jesus. And Jesus says, come down from the tree. I'm going to your house. If you, if you grew up in Sunday school, you sang a song about him. Jesus came to his house. The, the, the religious leaders grumbled. But here's what the Bible says about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus stood before the Lord. And said, behold the Lord, behold the Lord. Lord, I give you half of my goods to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, I'll restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. For the son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost. You know what repentance looks like? It looks like this. It looks like a guy who defrauded people out of their money and made himself rich by lining his pockets with theirs, turning and saying, I'm going to give it back to everybody more than I took, fourfold even, so that they'll have and know that I'm yours. And Jesus said, you're saved. I, I wish I had $10. And by that, I mean, I wish I had the $10 bill that was given to me by a young man. And if I was smart, Bill, I would have uh, framed it. You know, like in businesses, you go walk in, like the first 10 bucks they made or first dollar. I don't know. I wish we did done that and hung it in the foyer. Because I was standing down here and Leslie was with me and this young guy comes up in his 30s, squared away, sharp looking young guy. He, he hands me 10 bucks. And, you know, when he hands me $10, I say, hey, no, 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 I don't take money. I don't handle money. That goes to the offering and other people deal with that. He goes, no, 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 no. You understand, um, some years ago, I came through this part of, of Florida 
I came into your church after church and I asked you for $10. I told you some lie. How about how I needed gas money and I was just needing a fix and you gave me 10 bucks and I'm just giving it back. And then he tells us his story. He tells us a story how that he left here, we, we shared with him, but somebody shared the gospel with him along the way, and he gave his life to Christ. He'd been living for the Lord Jesus Christ, been serving in his church, married, has a family. Tell us this whole story. We're just, just amazed. We're just looking at this guy. Like, he doesn't look like a guy that needed $10 for gas. He's a guy that's squared away. He's living for Jesus, got a family. He said, you know, ever since I got saved, I've really been falling under the conviction of the fact that I need to go pay back people that I took from, and here's your $10. That's what repentance looks like. That's why I wish I had that $10 bill. I could hang it up. And when people say, what's that $10? I could say, uh, that's repentance. You mean, pastor, I need to change to come to Christ because I don't think I can. Oh, no, no, no. Here's what Peter preached. Listen to this very carefully. Here's what Peter preached in Acts chapter three, verse 19. Repent therefore and be converted. In our world, we have the idea that if I convert, that means I make a choice. I'm going to choose not to be this religion. I'm going to choose to be this religion. I'm going to choose not to go to this church. I'm going to choose to go to this church. That's why some of you have yet to be converted because you think it's something you choose to do. You're not ready to leave your ancestral faith. You're not ready to leave the teaching of your church. And so you think I'm not going to be saved because I don't want to convert to this religion. Religion's real good about getting in the way. Jesus doesn't say, hey, make a choice to go to a different place. He says, if you will repent of your sin, you will then be converted, which is something that happens to you, not something that you do. Something that happens from above where God changes you. You're born from above or born again. I was in uh, college. My roommate and I had the, uh, had the privilege of meeting a, a Catholic monk. We asked our professor, can we eat with this Catholic monk? And we did. We had a meal with him. He wasn't in that fasting state. And so there he was, ready to eat with us. We invited him back to our dorm room. And I'll never forget, here's a Catholic monk who had committed to, to, to poverty, committed to study the things of God, committed to being silent for periods of time, going without food for periods of time, looking at us and telling us, I'm not born again. I'm not saved. So I'm just telling you, you can join a monastery and not be converted. I want to encourage you to understand what Jesus said, the resurrection means. It means that you can be changed. And if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Old things, all, all things become new. Whenever you are converted, whenever you repent, he changes you. You don't just turn over a new leaf, try to start doing better, adding good things to your life on top of the bad things you've done. You become a new creature. You have a new relationship with Jesus Christ. Everyone in this room has a relationship with Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? It'd be an unfair question. You do. Everyone does. The devil has a relationship with Jesus Christ and he's going to hell. The question is, what is your relationship to Jesus Christ? And when you repent, you have a different relationship with Jesus Christ. Before you repent, the Bible says you're a child of wrath and you love it. You love the darkness more than you do light and you know it. You love your sin. You love it. We all did. And occasionally we do. When you repent, you are converted and you have then a new resurrection. The disciples were asking, what happens to us? You know, we, we've left everything. We're following after you. Jesus said this. Truly, I say to you, 
Mark chapter 10. Real important here. This is, this is really important. Truly I say to you, there is none who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. I always want to know what it is to follow Jesus and to follow the gospel. Whoever does this will not receive a hundredfold now in this life, houses, brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and land with persecutions. Jesus is very honest with these guys. He's very honest with us today. If you repent, it's going to cost you something. Because turning to Jesus means you're turning from things. Not just your sin. You might be turning from people who are close to you, who will be angry at you for leaving your religion to follow Christ. Be angry at you that you got serious about Jesus and you're not going out with them on Saturday night anymore. That you're not hanging out at the beach on Sundays anymore because Jesus is precious to you. And they're going to be upset with you. And Jesus said, look, I'm going to promise you some things. You're going to be blessed. You're going to have a lot more in this life. What he meant by that is you're going to have more brothers and sisters. You're going to have more brothers and sisters than mothers and fathers than you ever had because you're going to have a family. There's the family of God. You're going to have the family of God. But, but you're also you're going to have persecutions. And he said, here's the, here's the kicker. And in the age to come, eternal life. Thirdly, tell them when they repent, their sins are forgiven. Their sins are forgiven. This is why we proclaim Jesus' death, his resurrection, and tell people they have to repent. Why? So their sins can be forgiven. Don't you want your sins forgiven? Jesus told Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And, and by, this is what he was saying. People didn't know what he meant, but this is what he meant. You proclaim forgiveness. Whatever is loosed is forgiven. You proclaim me. Peter didn't know what that meant at the time. But what it meant was, we're going to proclaim Jesus' death, resurrection, and therefore people can be forgiven. They watched Jesus forgive people. A woman who had caught an adultery was thrown before the feet of Jesus. And people were saying, stone her, kill her. And Jesus said, I don't condemn her. Go and sin no more. Jesus was in this religious, self-righteous guy's house by the name of Simon. This woman of the world came in, began to weep before Jesus, and Jesus looked at her and said, your sin is forgiven. The disciples had watched Jesus forgive people's sin, people who didn't seem that they could ever have sin forgiven. They had so much, but he did. And he, for he can forgive yours. All sins, all sinners, anywhere so Jesus said, pray claim this. To whom? Well, that's it. Everybody, everywhere. Everybody, everywhere. Look at this text, verse 47. That the repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations from, from here. That is in Jerusalem where they were, from this city. That's what you and I have been called to. To be his witnesses and to call people everywhere we are to repentance. That, that, that means whether you're in a, a plane going to some business meeting or you're in your cafeteria eating a Swiss cake roll or you're on a tram in New Orleans. Leslie had me recount this story and I, I'll recount some of you heard this story. You just never know where people are. I sat down uh, in a tram in New Orleans. Why? Because we were doing a mission trip with our senior adults and we were on trams talking to people about Jesus, you know, and uh, our seniors were talking about Christ and sharing Jesus and 
They were trailing people who were tourists and people who were, who were just using the tram there in New Orleans to get to one place or the other. And this young business guy sat down next to me, he took his tie and un, uh, loosened it up and he just brushed his hair back and he was sweating and he had his, threw his briefcase down on the ground. I said, man, uh, it was pretty clear, pretty, I mean, I'm not the most perceptive sometimes, but it was bad. So I said, hey man, you having a bad day? The worst. He said, I'm just trying to figure out why I shouldn't end it and take as many people with me as I can. So then I started looking at the briefcase again. <laughs> you would too. He said, but a preacher that used to be my preacher in Mississippi called me out of the blue this morning. Out of the blue and told me that God has a plan for me. I said, well, you're not going to believe this. But you sat down next to a preacher. He whipped his head around and said, you're a preacher? And I began to share the gospel with him. I'm convinced there are more people in this world that want to hear about Jesus than there are Christians ready to tell people about Jesus. We're to proclaim Jesus everywhere. All people are sinners, therefore all people must be saved. And we have an aim, and that is to call people to repentance. We don't just want to say, come to church with us, and maybe you can be a part of some of our stuff. This is our commission. This is what we've been called to do. This is our purpose. We can do a lot as a church. Churches have lots of activities. I mean, sometimes you look at what churches do, and it's like going to the Cheesecake Factory, which is a great place. But I never can decide what I want because their menu is like a book. And that's the way some churches are. And I don't want to be that way. I want us to be about the main thing, proclaiming Jesus to the lost. I want to spend money on that. I want to spend energy on that. I want to spend our time on that. You can do a lot of things in churches and people think, oh, what a great church. Look what they're doing. Look who they're feeding. Look who they're clothing. We should do that. We will be involved in that. We can't be as integrated as we want to be sometimes as a church, but we certainly can be as involved as possible in those lives that need help and are hurting and broken, who can't feed themselves, can't clothe themselves. We can be a part of that. We will. We will by God's grace. We know a lot of things, but if we don't do this, if we don't do this, we miss it. We don't need to do this halfway either. Saul learned that hard lesson in the Old Testament where God gave him a command and he only went about 90% of the way and it cost him his throne. We don't do this halfway. We can't do everything, but we can do this thing. We've been reading a book the staff has. I'll close here. Um, it's called Evangelistic Living. Carswell he talks about what evangelism is. He said, Jesus' great commission is not talking theology over a latte. It's not simply to regularly attend every possible meeting and conference. The great commission is to go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. It's too easy for Christians to neglect reaching the lost by being distracted by lesser things. Not living on purpose. He told this story about Kevin Carter, who was an unknown photographer in 1993 in Sudan during the famine. He was snap, snapping shots of dying children, and he heard a whimpering in the bushes. He came over and found a little boy 
whose stomach was extended, bloated, flies around his head, eyes sunken back in his head. And while he looked at that little boy, a vulture landed right next to his head, the little boy's head. And he backed up. And in his frame, he could see the little boy starving. He could see the vulture and just in a little distance, a feeding center that the little boy was trying to get to. And he got the shot. The New York Times bought that photograph, the little boy, the vulture, the feeding center. They ran it. Time Magazine, two months later, picked it up, put it on the front cover. 14 months later, um, Carter received the Pulitzer Prize for his photograph. Two months after receiving the Pulitzer Prize, Kevin Carter drove to his hometown, took an, a tube, hooked it to his exhaust in his car, ran it inside, sat there, and died by suicide. What happened? What happened to the child? Kevin Carter, after publishing those pictures, received letters, hundreds of letters, hundreds of letters, all of them asking the same question, Kevin Carter, what happened to the child? The answer, nothing. He doesn't know. He took the picture and moved on his way. And he couldn't live with the shame and regret. It's not enough to come here on Sunday and get a picture of the lost world, is it? What's important is that we do something about it. What will make us do something about it is not just understanding that people are going to hell. We know that. Or pretend they're not. Well, they believe in Jesus, don't they? They go to church, don't they? To try to salve our heart's burden. J.C. Ryle, long been with the Lord, said, let others hold for the tears of hell and the joys of heaven. Do you notice that Jesus doesn't come with some sob stories about hell? He said, tell them about the cross. Ryle said, give me the cross of Christ. This is the only lever which has ever turned the world upside down and made people forsake their sins. And if this will not do it, nothing will. We will do no good among our peers unless we know something of the cross. Jesus said, proclaim me, proclaim me from the scriptures, proclaim me to everybody and proclaim me in the power of the Holy Spirit, which means this. When you step outside of yourself and say, okay, I'll do it. I'll live on purpose. I'll live on the purpose, God, you left me here. You left me here for something and that's to share Jesus, share the death, resurrection of Christ. I'm gonna do it. I don't know how I'm gonna do it, but I'm gonna do it. Guess what? When you step outside of yourself, you step into the power of the Holy Spirit. Resurrection power. How did it go for these disciples? Did it work? I mean, did they go and share the gospel? I mean, do we know the rest of the story? Thank God we have the book of Acts because we would never know. But yes, they go. They preach in power and hundreds and thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ simply because they step out of their comfort zone and they step into the power of the Holy Spirit and open their mouth and share Jesus. And God does the rest. God does the rest. And like, this is awesome. Because if you were to talk to Jesus and say, okay, tell me about what you're gonna do. Yeah, I've got this plan. I'm gonna take over the world and I'm gonna take over the world by what means. Well, what is your business plan? Well, I'm gonna use guys to share the message of the cross and the resurrection. Okay, are these religious guys? Are these seminary trained? guys, professional guys, guys with pedigree, what kind of guys? No, 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 no. Fishermen, liars, and thieves. That doesn't sound like a good plan, oh, but it's the plan. And if you were here today and you were to say, not me, 
I'm not a gifted evangelist. You may not be. But you are a witness. And we are all witnesses. And our aim is to call people to repent for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. May we make much of you. There's no defeat in the kingdom of God. And I want to say to you, there are some of you in this room, this is inevitable. When we begin to preach the gospel and make much of Jesus, you realize that you need to be saved. You need to repent and believe on Jesus. I want to ask you some questions today. Do you believe Jesus died for you in your place? Do you believe Jesus died and he died for you? The sinless Christ died for sin, but not just others, yours. And then three days later, he rose again, satisfying the demands of a holy God who requires a payment for sin. And by raising Jesus from the dead proves that Jesus' death was enough. Do you believe that? I can't add to that. I can't take away from that. There's nothing I can give to that. I just have to believe. Are you going to repent? Are you willing to turn from your sin today and trust Jesus? Are you willing to turn from your self-righteousness? Nothing. To the cross I bring, simply to Jesus I cling. For the forgiveness of sins. Why not call out to God? Call out to God. Would you say this to God? Lord, you have opened my eyes today. You've opened my eyes today. I'm lost. I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. I'm amazed that you love me. I'm amazed the Lord Jesus Christ would die in my place. And thank you, thank you, thank you. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is Lord. And I today am turning to you. I'm repenting from my sin. I no longer want to live the way I've lived. I want you to have my life. Forgive me. Wash me, cleanse me, make me yours. In Jesus' name, amen.